So welcome back, everyone. Thank you for joining us for the second session of this morning. Uh, we're beginning the thematic sections of the event. If, uh, could somebody close the door, please? So today we are joined by a very prestigious uh, panel. Uh, thank you all for joining us, for coming all the way to Bruegel for this. Um, we are having uh, uh, Ambassador uh, Escanero, who, who is the ambassador of Mexico here in, in Belgium, but also the mission of Mexico to the European Union. Um, Carmen Gonzalez Enriquez, who is a senior analyst at El Cano Royal Institute. And finally, we have uh, Diego Acosta, who is going to join us remotely. Um, and he will, I think he's, oh, you're already, you're already there. Diego, welcome, good morning. Can you hear us, Diego? No, no, thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can hear you. Hello, Alicia. <laughs> And we also see Alicia. Well, welcome, Alicia, as well. Thank you for joining us. Can you hear me? <laughs> yeah, he's probably got. Uh, he's probably muted. Uh, but we will. No, no, we can hear him, but it is very low. Perhaps we can put it a little bit up. Yeah. But anyway, so we're going to take this order. Uh, I have asked the panelists to uh, uh, give us a maybe 10 minutes of introductory uh, remarks. After that, I would like us to have a little conversation here in the panel, but also opening up the floor for questions. We have to finish at 12, uh, at 12 sharp, I'm afraid. So uh, please keep your, keep your uh, notes uh, concise so that we can allow also for some discussion. So, um, Ambassador, can I ask you to go first? We have a topic on migration. We started the discussion in the first session uh, on migration, a topic that is extremely dear to, uh, well, worldwide, but certainly also in Europe, particular challenges that different countries face, different continents face, but there are also challenges that are similar across the continents. Um, and we would ask you to reflect on the issue of migration, particularly how it affects the relationship between EU and Latin America, and also make broader comments about specific uh, about the compact itself uh, or about specific country issues that you think are important to this conversation. So, Ambassador, I would like you to take the floor for the first 10 minutes and, and we take it from there. Thank you very much. Good morning, everyone. First of all, I would like to thank Bruegel, Giga, uh, and, and Elcano for the kind invitation. And I will go straight to the point. Uh, as time is running. And uh, the topic of this uh, session is the Global Compact for Migration and its impact on the ULAC relations. So I will organize my thoughts in three basic uh, chapters. Is, uh, first, I will uh, give a few remarks on the Global Compact. Then I will um, address a particular implementation, implementation action that is uh, very important from the perspective of Mexico. It's a comprehensive development plan that we are promoting, uh, and together with um, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras. And finally, I will make a few remarks on the overall relationship between European and Latin America in this context. First of all, on the global po compact, Perhaps what is important to stress uh, is that uh, it's a milestone in multilateral diplomacy. It's the first time that we have a, a, an agreed text in, at the United Nations to address uh, a, a major challenge of our times in a comprehensive manner. 
the integrality of the uh, of the compact is one of the most important characteristics, and also the fact that uh, uh, not only addresses the causes of the phenomenon um, and the different stages in which it de develops and provides a, a, a important insights on how to address it nationally and collectively. Uh, but also it's a, it's a, um, a call for action. Um, the value of the Global Compact at the end will be uh, in how much we can uh, use it as a platform for action, for uh, uh, promoting uh, international cooperation to address this uh, important challenge. Um, certainly, uh, the process was, uh, uh, had some problems. It was not a full consensus at the UN. And as, at, at the later stage, was politicized. But it's important to understand that the Global Compact is not a binding document, and many of the criticisms that have been posed on the Compact do not relate to the actual context of the Compact. The Compact is a very basic document uh, that uh, comprises a set of principles, values, and um, uh, guidelines for uh, those who want to cooperate, those who see that cooperation is an answer to address better uh, the, the issue of migration and having the persons at the center of this effort, having human rights at the center of how we address this uh, very uh, human phenomenon, which is migration and has carried on with us throughout history. Um, for, for, um, from the perspective of Mexico, uh, well, we were very engaged. Uh, the, one of the co-facilitators was a Mexican ambassador, our representative at the UN. But more than that, I will stress that uh, the, the new government of Mexico that took power on the 1st of December has embraced this um, global compact for migration uh, in Marrakech uh, when it was adopted formally. The Mexican government announced this initiative that I mentioned, the Comprehensive Development Plan uh, for Central America, um, as a, one of the first implementing actions for this global compact. So um, I want to stress also that this part, uh, Comprehensive Development Plan uh, was the first um, political uh, um, announcement made by the new government in taking power on the 1st of December. It is a, a plan that uh, has the purpose of addressing the root causes of migration, uh, trying to make sure that uh, migration is not an obligation, but an option. That means uh, trying to build uh, the economic and social frameworks to make sure that uh, people can have a, digni a, a dignified life in their place of origin and uh, it, uh, um, this plan is not only a national priority for Mexico, it's a project that uh, has the aspiration to be a, a, a regional uh, initiative with a, a regional impact and also to be an emblematic case on how we can uh, um, um, advance in the new paradigm of international cooperation required to fulfill the uh, commitments that we have on the Agenda 2030 
for sustainable development. In a sense, it's a, a very modern uh, initiative. It's, it really um, is established on, their, on, a, on a framework that we have been uh, building at the UN on how we conceive in, uh, the uh, international cooperation. And that means that first of all relies on national efforts, the national efforts of the most interested parties, Mexico and the other countries of Central America, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, but also is open to the international cooperation of the international institutions, the banks, the multilaterals, uh, the multilateral organizations, and also is an invitation for other parties to get involved, uh, uh, particularly the, uh, uh, in our region, the USA, Canada, but also open to the, uh, to the cooperation of other important parties globally. And in this, I would like to highlight that uh, with the European Union, we have uh, been addressing this uh, opportunity of cooperation because we share um, several, many values, many uh, principles, and uh, we have engaged previously in different ways of cooperation in our region, and we think that with this, uh, in this initiative, we can um, find a, a, a new point of departure for a higher level of cooperation in which we can have a more coherent approach to regional development in our region and uh, address, uh, as I mentioned before, the root causes of migration. Um, in our perspective, then, uh, this um, initiative uh, has a strategic value for European-Latin American relations because uh, we have uh, agreed in many uh, platforms with uh, our partners of the European Union on different sets of, uh, of values and principles. And when we have addressed migration, we have always highlighted the need to exchange experiences and to cooperate. And we very much have a similar uh, outlook on uh, the idea of uh, having a comprehensive approach to address this issue, and also a very important uh, element that links us uh, deeply with the European Union is that we want human rights at the center of this effort. Uh, so uh, for us, this will be the, this uh, strategic cooperation between, uh, in this case, Mexico and the European Union in this regional initiative, and also together with our uh, uh, friends and partners of Central America, uh, Guatemala, Honduras, El Salvador, will be uh, a model, will be a, a, a beacon of how we can uh, give content to the good uh, ideas, to the good aspirations, to the good purposes that are embodied in the uh, Global Compact for Migration. I think that um, at this stage I can uh, I have finished exactly the 10 minutes I, I was required, so I'm ready for a conversation. Thank, Thank you very you. much. Thank you very much, Ambassador. Now that we'll come back to some of the issues, and if you can give us your Mexican experience, I think that will be very, very useful in this discussion. But let's come back to Carmen. Okay. Uh, you're going to give us a slightly broader picture okay. uh, on the issue of the global compact. Thank you. Thank well, you. good morning to all. It's a pleasure to be here sharing this uh, seminar with uh, Bruegel, Siga, Giga, and, and all of you. Uh, 
I am going to speak uh, uh, too about the compact on migration and in the second part about the forcible impact of the uh, uh, sorry impact of this compact on the EU and uh, lack uh, countries relation on migration. As you know. Migration has become one of the main divisive uh, political issues in Europe, and not only in Europe, uh, also. In a good part of the developed countries, we receive uh, big um, numbers of migrants. Uh, and more recently, migration has become even a political, uh, heated uh, political issue on uh, formerly sending, uh, sending countries, uh, like uh, some of the Latin American countries which has been uh, already mentioned here. Uh, on those countries, specifically speaking now about Latin America, the Venezuelan crisis has provoked in several of, uh, of them, like uh, Peru or Colombia or others, uh, the uh, appearance of uh, new um, tensions, new xenophobic feelings, new proposals of uh, restrictive policies on migration. Maybe um, all of you know perfectly how this compact was uh, proposed and developed. It, it, the story begins with the crisis of refugee in 2015 and its effect on Europe. This crisis provoked an international debate about responsibilities and burden sharing uh, between developed states and those located in the vicinity of the origin of the crisis, Syria, and uh, even a debate among developed states all around the world, uh, America, Asia, even Asia, speaking about the uh, Gulf uh, monarchies uh, there. Uh, and as a result of this political earthquake, the United Nations General Assembly approved in 2016 the New York Declaration for Refugees and Migrants, which included a commitment to negotiate two separate compacts, one on refugee and the, the other one on migration. The first one, uh, the compact on refugee, was approved in 2016, and it didn't provoke uh, relevant debates. Contrary to that, the Global Compact on Migration, whose exact name is Global Compact for Safe, Orderly and Regular Migration, uh, is already the second attempt of the United Nations to uh, create, to, to produce an uh, international norm on migration, on labor migration. The first one, was uh, approved in, in 1990, and uh, uh, it has been signed only or almost only by sending countries. For instance, almost all in uh, Africa, almost all African countries signed it, and many in Latin America, many in Asia, but very few in the receiving uh, area. I mean, in the north. Uh, like, the, like Canada, the US, or European countries, very few of them have, have signed this. Uh, un it's called United Convention on uh, Migrant Workers and Their Families. 
Well, this was the first failure of the multilateral organization, the United Nations, to regulate uh, international migration. But they kept trying, and um, they finally produced this compact. It is not an uh, uh, it is not an international treaty. It is only an uh, declaration uh, and an uh, intergovernmental agreement, uh, but it has not the um, force of a treaty and it has supposedly not uh, binding uh, force. The main obstacle which the United Nations or any other international attempt has faced to produce this kind of international regulation is the fact that the free movement of peoples uh, can be seen as a threat to uh, state sovereignty over one of the two principles or the main principles of state sovereignty, which is territory and population. So the ability to states of the capacity of states to decide or to establish the norms which uh, establish who can take part of this population could be seen as threatened by uh, free migration. And uh, this is the stumbling, the stumbling block uh, which the United Nations has faced several times. So to overcome this block, uh, this uh, proposal has this non-binding effect, which means that, as you can understand perfectly, supposedly states uh, who have signed it can or cannot uh, act according to, this, uh, to the principles uh, included in this compact. Well, doing that, doing that uh, the United Nations has managed to obtain the signatures of the vast majority of sending countries, sending and receiving countries. In total, 152 states uh, voted finally in favor of the compact. Only five voted against, US, Hungary, Poland, Czech Republic, and Israel. But three, uh, 36 states uh, abstained finally, or from the beginning they didn't take part in the debates. Among them, we can find two Latin American countries, Chile and Dominican Republic, and uh, important states all over the world, like Australia, Austria, Italy, Switzerland, Algeria, Libya, Bulgaria, Estonia, so on. So uh, the support for this global compact on refugees is uh, less, sorry, the support for the global compact on refugee was, was much higher, was higher than the compact, than the uh, support for the global compact on migration. And why is this, uh, what, uh, which factors explain this different support for both uh, compacts? Uh, I guess that probably the main answer is the fact that the US, uh, when uh, uh, the compact on refugee was uh, being um, drafted, uh, apparently they were able or they were willing to support it, but they retired in the last moment. They decided not to vote for it in the last moment. In, but in comparison with that, in this case, the, the Global Compact on Migration, from the beginning, the US uh, uh, clearly 
stated that they were not going to sign it. And it gave, uh, this fact gave time to many other countries in the world to think about their position and also to use uh, the debates on this uh, compact as a domestic political tool, um, as, a, as an arm, a way to obtain votes among Publics, I am thinking about some European countries now, uh, but not, not only, also Australia is, a, is an example, where countries where uh, public opinion is, is, is increasingly fearful uh, of migration or uh, where public opinion is turning uh, towards more xenophobic uh, position. Uh, their arguments, no, sorry, their, um, their reasons to not, not vote, not voting for this compact are related with this uh, defense of uh, state sovereignty on migration policy. For instance, Chile. Chile has received around 700,000 uh, migrants during the last four years. And they explain their negative to sign the compact, saying that, uh, among other things, uh, it promotes the entry in the country of irregular migrants who then can uh, legalize their situation. Not because, the, of, of course, the compact does, doesn't say anything about promoting the entry of irregular migrants, but in the wording, uh, it states that, is, that the states should open ways for irregular migrants to legalize their situation. Um, the principles that the compact includes uh, can be seen uh, for uh, some states who are jealous about their independence and sovereignty on this issue, can be seen as uh, contradictory among them, among each other. Um, for instance, Although the compact um, repeatedly uh, respect, uh, mention the state sovereignty, also it um, recommend uh, the states to recognize the social right of migrants without differentiating between uh, regular and irregular uh, migrants. So, um, on the other hand, this non-binding character of the compact uh, cast many doubts about uh, what's going to be his uh, effectiveness. Uh, in fact, it can be seen as an instrument of soft law that, that uh, national or international uh, courts can consider as an aid when interpreting national norms. Uh, on the other hand, the fact that the, the test was so debated and that finally 41 states decided uh, not to vote for it, uh, explicitly voting against or abstaining from voting, uh, clearly means that they think that the compact can have an effective influence. Um, 
Speaking now uh, specifically about uh, the impact on relations between Latin American countries and, uh, and uh, Europe, it is uh, probably not to have a great influence. Well, firstly, we can say something about the US. As the US didn't sign the compact, it's clear that it's not going to have any effect or any uh, big effect on the relation uh, between US and Mexico or um, US or Canada and Latin American countries in general. Um, but speaking again about European Union, as uh, Carlos said uh, earlier, uh, there are uh, almost 5 million of uh, Latin American migrants living in European countries, in EU countries. Uh, but um, the compact is dealing uh, primarily with an element which is not very important in the relation between EU lack uh, migration, uh, migratory relation, which is how to order this movement, how to avoid irregular migration. Uh, Latin American migrants in Europe uh, usually arrive legally. A different thing is that, uh, at least as it happened in the past, at, at least in, in Spain, uh, some of them uh, became uh, irregular migrants uh, after some months of stay, overstaying their visas. Maybe they entered as tourists or they entered as a student, and some of them when I say some, I say some thousands, uh, some thousand of them overstay their visas and then, well, they added to the problem of irregular migration in Europe. But generally speaking, clearly this is not the question in the migratory relation between uh, EU and LAC countries. Uh, on the contrary, our challenge on this field is how to get more uh, how to attract to Europe more qualified migrants for Latin American countries. Uh, nowadays, uh, good students and good professionals in Latin American countries who decide to migrate choose systematically the US or maybe Canada. And only in a third or fourth uh, place uh, they are tempted towards Europe. Um, we perfectly know that uh, we are living in a, in a world economy where the competition between states, states to attract talent, to attract the good, the best professionals, is going to be um, uh, harder and harder, among other things, because the population in the worldwide is decreasing. Uh, except in Africa, in sub-Saharan Africa by now. So um, Europe must uh, fight uh, to attract good students to uh, our universities and good professionals to our labor market. And I do not see that EU is doing anything to uh, begin, begin to fight this battle. Um, 
And on this realm, the global compact on migration really has not much to say, because as I explained, uh, it is much more focused on how to avoid irregular migration and the risks associated to it. Uh, probably, although the compact doesn't say anything about regional areas specifically, it is clearly thought uh, more, uh, so the design is taking into account more the migra migration between Africa and Europe, probably, or Asia and Europe, than uh, between Latin America and, uh, and Europe. Okay, so thank you very much. <laughs> okay, thank you. I'm very obedient. You've raised a number of very interesting issues. We'll come okay. back to them, but not before we give also the word to Diego. Uh, Diego, can you hear us okay? Yeah, I can hear you fine. Can you hear me fine? Yes, if you can come closer to the microphone, that would be uh, that would be much appreciated. Uh, ten minutes for your comments, Diego. Okay, that's great. Well, first of all, let me, let me, thanks, uh, let me thank Giga and his director, uh, Bert Hoffman, Bruegel, and Elcano. Let me thank you also, Maria. Uh, and let me uh, greet also Ambassador Escanero and Carmen Gonzalez Enrique, uh, whose work I have I have read many times. Uh, I'm sorry not to be able to be with you today, but I'm, as you will see, I, what I'm doing uh, far away is related to the topic of, of my of my, my, my presentation. presentation actually. Actually. I just make, I, I just make a three very simple points. points. Um, I'm, going I'm going to begin by discussing a little bit about what the global compact is, in my opinion. And I'm going to then, to then move to the, to the example, example of South America. Of South America. So, so uh, my first point, my first point is, is very simple. I don't see the global compact as a global instrument. I rather see the global compact as a regional instrument. So if you like, I take what Carmen was saying at the very end. Actually, if you read the global compact carefully, you will see that the word regional is mentioned more than 50 times. And I think precisely, precisely a free movement at regional level is what I consider, is what I consider to be a new normal globally. globally. It, is it is happening everywhere. everywhere. It has happened, as we all know, obviously since you're in Brussels, in the European Union. It has happened in South America with the Mercosur Residence Agreement. It has happened in Central America and the Caribbean, in several regions in Africa, and right now in Djibouti, where we are concluding the drafting of a free movement protocol of people, free movement of people protocol. The uh, at the level of the IGAD regional, regional conference, a regional organization. So it is something, so that, it is something is that is happening in many different, in many different uh, regions around the world. And I think the regional is precisely the uh, perfect uh, space. Mobility, mobility because most mobility happens in any case, uh, in any case at regional so level. So I see the global compact as a regional instrument, and in that regard, I think South America has a lot to say in this new normal of more and more regions adopting free movement regimes. Again, I was a couple of weeks ago in Russia. Russia and four countries around now also have since 2015 a free movement of workers agreement as part of the Eurasian Economic Union. So this is a new normal about which South America can say actually a lot, because the Mercosur Residence Agreement has led to 2.6 million residence permits being granted between 2009 and 2016. For those of you who don't know about the agreement, since there was no official translation into English, I did 
an official an translation official. with a US colleague a, a few weeks ago. So if you're interested, you can contact me and I can send you that unofficial translation into English of the Mercosur Residence Agreement, which was only in Spanish and in Portuguese. So my first point, the Global Compact is a regional instrument. My second point is uh, this idea that we have that the Global Compact has been pushed by the Global South. And I would like to problematize, problematize that. Uh, because actually that has not happened. Uh, Carmen has already mentioned that many countries in the Global South have actually not endorsed the Global Compact. Uh, she mentioned Algeria, uh, Libya, in the case of South America, Chile and Brazil, uh, in the case of Latin America at large, Dominican Republic, something about which I am certainly no surprise and any of you who have been to the Dominican Republic will not be surprised either. And, and I think there is a, an important narrative that needs to be problematized uh, in Latin America uh, uh, considering Latin America as an open region towards migration historically and today. I think that has a certain element of truth, of course, but I think at the same time, Latin America has, Latin America also, has been also been a region with a long history of closure towards the foreigner. And that history of both openness and closure is a history which is not in contradiction with each other. If you like, it's a juxtaposition of openness and closure. It's a much more organic relationship between openness and closure. And precisely the situation of Venezuelans right now in South America is the perfect example of that. Let me give you an example of a country, I don't know if we have any Chileans in the audience, but since Carmen already mentioned the case of Chile, I can just give you an example about that. Chile is a very interesting country. During the negotiations for the Global Compact, Chile was advocating for including under Objective 5 the principle of regularization of undocumented migration as a possible solution for undocumented migration. A solution which, by the way, since you are in Brussels, the European Commission has long forgotten. Until 2014, the European Commission was considering regularization as a potential tool for dealing with irregular migration. Now the European Commission is only obsessed with expulsion and return. But Chile was advocating for that. But at the same time, in the new proposal for a migration law in Chile, which is now in front of the Senate, Chile was prohibiting by law regularization. So as you can see, there's a very strong contradiction there. But the example of Venezuelans, as I said, is very paradigmatic because even though countries in South America are creating permits for the residents of Venezuelans, these permits are ad hoc permits, are led by the executives, are always temporary, and there is a great element of discretion and of bureaucracy involved. Even though there are other legal figures that these countries could use, for example, the definition of refugee under the Cartagena Declaration, which is incorporated into most of the asylum laws in South America. Despite that, the only country that is actually giving refugee status to uh, Venezuelans is Mexico. To a few of them, Mexico obviously has many other issues with regards to immigration as well, but it's the only country that is that is given that. So I think the Venezuelan situation is the best example of that juxtaposition that I mentioned in between openness and closure in South America. And my final point is, uh, what is the relationship between the global compact and the emergence of new actors in South America. We can uh, obviously not ignore that uh, there is a new government in Brazil uh, with a president who is xenophobic, who has very clearly advocated many years ago, since many years ago, his opposition to any kind of rights for migrants, even though Brazil is not an immigration country, Brazil has between 0.3 and 0.7% of immigrants. Uh, we obviously have Macri in Argentina, who, uh, through a decree, uh, and bypassing the 
Parliament adopted a legislative and executive decree in January 2017, which is now in front of the Supreme Court in Argentina to validate its constitutionality or not, which certainly derogates many of the provisions of the Argentinian migration law from 2004. And we have Piñera in Chile, who is proposing a new migration law, as I said, which is now in front of the, in front of the Senate, which is not a progressive migration law. We have Ecuador and Peru, who are now in Peru since last week and or since the 15th of June, to be precise, and Ecuador, and there were colleagues in Ecuador were telling me that very soon in the coming weeks, Ecuador is also going to demand a visa for Venezuelans. So, uh, you know, we have here these changes which are obviously going to affect the regulation, not only the discourse of migration, but also the regulation of migration. But at the same time, I have a positive note to bring, because we have other actors that are also emerging in South America. First of all, we have courts. Courts were never very much involved in discussions on migration law, because as I said, in the South American context, migration law has been mostly legislated through executive decrees, very little participation by lawyers, by courts, etc. And now we see the emergence of courts deciding on important cases, and not only courts, but also the ombudsman, defensorias publicas, legal clinics in law schools, which are going to be very important. Another very relevant emerging actor is civil society. We see a very vibrant civil society, precisely with the arrival of Venezuelans in all countries in South America. I have been working on this in South America for 10 years. I can tell you 10 years ago, it was only in Argentina where you had a vibrant civil society working on migrant rights. Now you have that vibrant civil society everywhere. And finally, I think this is very important, we have academia. Again, 10 years ago when I started working on this, the first presentation I did just was in Chile in 2009, in a very large congress, some of you will know it, IPSA. And there were no panels devoted to immigration policy or immigration law in South America. Most panels, if there were any discussing migration, were talking about the emigration of South Americans abroad. Now what we see is an incredible boom in academics doing PhDs in the US, in Europe, in South America. Just yesterday I was in Edinburgh in an incredible conference organized by the University of Edinburgh where we have colleagues from Latin America, colleagues from Europe, working on these issues. And I think precisely that point of what is what could be the relationship between Europe and Latin America about the global combat, I think academia can play a very important bridge because what I see in this emerging academia in South America is that these are colleagues who are not only interested in theoretical debates, but these are colleagues who are very much involved in political, in legislative, and also in media engagement and debates. So I think play a very important role in uh, being a bridge between both regions. So just to conclude, again, and to summarize, I see the global compact not as a global instrument, but as a regional instrument. I think free movement of people at regional level is the new normal. It's happening everywhere. This is a very important thing. I see the global compact as an instrument that has not been necessarily pushed by the global south, but there are many contradictions in the global south with regards to the management of migration, with regards to the regulation of laws and policies. And finally, I have mentioned the uh, new actors uh, emerging in South America, which if we keep ourselves at the surface, we will be quite pessimistic seeing you know, the Bolsonaros and all the rest. But if we look uh, a little bit deeper, we see that courts, civil society, and academics will play a very important role, I think, in, um, you know, in uh, toning down some of the most restrictive impulses uh, 
uh, that uh, some of these new uh, governments may have. So I leave it there. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Edio. Uh, thank you all three, actually, for very comprehensive uh, comments and so much, uh, so much to discuss. Uh, I'm going to ask you in a minute if you can react to uh, perhaps one or two things of what the other speakers have said. But let me just share a thought of, in terms of the challenge that the way that we see the issue of, of migration and, of course, the refugee crisis, because the two, certainly the public eyes, are often intertwined. They're not separated under the public opinion, the way that public opinion often affects these types of agreements, it doesn't often uh, you know, differentiate between the two. But actually, you mentioned, Akama, the non-binding the non nature of these types of, or legally binding nature of these types of agreements. And in fact, you see it even in a microcosm or in Europe, which is not the global, but even in Europe, the issue of the non-binding agreements is actually extremely, extremely important, where even here we can't find a similar way of addressing the issue. There isn't agreement between countries. Again, you see, not only in signing the Global Compact, but actually cooperating within Europe in terms of how we're going to, try, how we're going to handle the refugee crisis, the immigration crisis, the constant stream of people that is going to be coming to Europe, and they will be coming to Europe for, for, for many years to come, given the, uh, the fertility rate in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, but even here, uh, it is very, very difficult to find a common way of addressing the problem, let alone if you, go it, if you take that issue of the global scene, um, how do you find sort of a common ground? You've mentioned, uh, Carmen, the issue of, uh, of you know, talent, the search for talent, uh, and how uh, you know, our, our attempted solution to this problem needs to sort of have that element in it of how do we attract talent to Europe. I mean, how do the other countries, how do Latin American countries see this? Uh, how does uh, you know, Africa see this. And, you know, if you're talking about immigration, is it a one-stream flow or is it a sort of a two-stream flow? How do you see uh, uh, this? And, and, and importantly, and this is, I think, is a, a very important issue in the context of Europe, but beyond that, I'm sure, uh, the issue of the political fallout as a result of not having uh, agreements on this issue. In Europe, we have seen a political fallout. Uh, we've seen the rise of extremism uh, in, in, in Europe as a result of having different views about, uh, about immigration, the, the rise of the xenophobic elements. All of these are obstacles that are preventing even Europe to come to a consistent approach mm -hmm. to something that is a little bit more binding. Uh, how do we meet that challenge at the global level? Uh, and how does that affect, in the context of this, of this meeting, how does it affect uh, EU, like in American relations. So I'd like to have your thoughts on also the enormous challenge ahead of us and how do we go move from no binding agreements to good outcomes. Um, Ambassador. Well, as I and thank you for the other presentations. They were very interesting. Um, as I hinted in my presentation, I think that we have to understand that immigration has been a, a challenge, an opportunity at the level of the persons, at the level of the peoples of the nations throughout history. That is part of being human. And um, what probably is, uh, uh, we have to focus now is that in our globalized world, and in a world that is changing very fast, the world we are living now, uh, migration is taking a, a higher uh, profile, a, a higher importance. Um, but again, I repeat, not as a, only a, uh, as a challenge in a negative way, it's, it's an opportunity, or in, 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 uh, at any rate, it's a reality. And 
in this, vis-a-vis uh, -vis this reality, is um, the question of how we are going to address it. If we could address it in, uh, nationally, uh, we would not need uh, multilateral discussion or international discussions. It's an international phenomenon that now I think is very well recognized that uh, in order to address it properly, requires the, com the, the commitment, the action of many actors at the national, at the regional, at the international level, not only from the public sector, from all sectors of society. And what it was the global compact uh, attempt was, as I said, was a milestone, but it was a, a, a modest uh, first step only in trying to build up a governance of international cooperation to address this issue in a human manner uh, with human rights uh, at the center, knowing that we are talking about flows of people and that um, in order to, to, to address them properly, we need to uh, see them in, in, in a comprehensive manner, in, in its integrality. And that is very much the sense of what we have been achieved also with Agenda 2030 for Sustainable Development, the concept of working all of us together in a comprehensive agenda. So the Global Compact is part of this effort. About your question about if it's, and I also underline that it's a non-binding document, just to highlight that uh, uh, it is a, uh, in many ways aspirational and in many ways it offers a, a, a group of ideas, guidelines that were discussed at the United Nations and it was trying to distillate the best of the minds of the different parties to try to come to a framework of understanding and cooperation. But I will say the key point is, uh, that is why we want to perceive it, to understand it, is a call for action. Words are very good, um, multilateral documents are very good, but if there are no implementation, if there are no actions on the ground, then they are beautiful words only. So for us it's a call for action, and that is what makes it stick. A call for action, of course, through our national efforts, but also in cooperation with others. That is why I highlight uh, uh, in my presentation the Comprehensive Development Plan for Central America, because it's not conceived only as a national effort, it's a, a national effort, regional effort, and it is a, has a, an aspiration to be a, a globally emblematic case on how we can address together the issues at its root, at its roots, uh, in terms of the key uh, point of the Comprehensive Development Plan for Central America is precisely to um, promote equitable and sustainable development in our region, to promote that the uh, people can uh, uh, find dignified ways of living in their points of origin. And of course, also, we address different issues related to the ongoing migration. It's a, as I say, it's a reality. It's not something that we have to uh, see if it's good or bad. We have to see it is there, and we have to find ways, rational ways, modern ways, to address it in, in what is supposed to be a humanity in the 21st century. So that is a, a, our point. And in terms of the European-Latin American uh, relations, as I uh, mentioned, for us, that is the way to go. 
I mean, we also can have declarations between uh, Latin America and Europe and discuss many issues, but the way to go is actions. By the way, actions not only between governments or, or even public, international, or regional entities, but also involving the private sector for sure. We are talking about development. We, are, we need the private sector involvement, and we need the civil society at large involvement. And we need also the company of uh, organizations like yours. We need the think tanks, the, the academics, to help us to articulate um, uh, this uh, implementing actions, to help us to give it uh, relief and projection to see what is the good experience that uh, some of them may have for others, and to also advise uh, on how we can better pursue all this. Uh, and finally, if you allow me, just a, a, a brief, uh, uh, I don't know, it's commercial or advertisement. Uh, the coming week is the European Development Days, and um, we will take the opportunity to make a presentation of the Comprehensive Development Plan uh, in that fora. It's 18, 19 June. Um, uh, I think it's 18 of June in the morning, our uh, presentation. Uh, we will do it together with ECLAC, the Economic Commission for Latin America of the United Nations, who has been a, a, a key um, partner in, the, in, uh, in designing this comprehensive development plan and others, it will be the UNDP and other multilaterals. And our purpose to present it uh, there in the European Development Days is twofold. One uh, uh, element is to present it precisely as an emblematic case on how we can go uh, uh, to articulate the new paradigm of international cooperation for development. That is, we want to share our our uh, vision uh, with others. And certainly is a signal of how interested we also are that the European Union also be partners of us, a strategic partner of us in this regional initiative. And we hope that the European Union be part of this regional initiative, as well as others that may come up in Latin America of, with, of this nature, um, uh, avant-garde initiatives that want to address issues in a comprehensive manner and based on values that we share. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, Carmen, any yes. initial reactions? Yes, uh, thank you. Yes. Um, I'm trying to ask your question about what can be done to get a binding uh, agreement on international... Well, effective mind. binding Effective, okay. Well, no, I, I, no, simply, I think it is not possible. I mean, no. Uh, that this is the best we can get, this is the best we can achieve. And, but as Diego Costa has said, uh, being uh, optimistic, I guess that this compact on migration can lead to, can lead, lead to the signing of regional mm. agreements. And that's important, that's very sure. important, a regional agreement between, I don't know, 
EU and the Maghreb, for instance, would be very useful, and we are still far away from that. Uh, maybe regional agreements on Latin America uh, or inside African countries can be more easily achieved, I don't know. But I, uh, I, I do not see in the foreseeable future, let's say, 10 years, uh, any chance that uh, arriving to any other more effective uh, international agree agreement on migration than this one. Um, because migration is a toxic issue and states are very, very careful about it. So, and they have reasons for being careful. Um, on, the other, on the other hand, the, your question about the European Union. Oof. <laughs> In the European Union, we are still stuck on the debate about how to distribute uh, refugees. Um, we have been unable to reform our um, asylum system. And in the meanwhile, the problem has changed. The, in, 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 in the reality now, in the numbers, um, distributing refugees is no now a problem in Europe because those refugees who should have been supposedly in these hotspots in Italy or Greece, simply they are not there or those who are there, uh, uh, are there because they cannot be accepted according to the European rules in any of the European states. So, uh, so in fact, we have not uh, this problem of distributing refugees uh, now inside the European Union. But the problem has changed, and now the problem is economic irregular migration arriving to Italy, Spain, mostly Italy and Spain, from African countries. This kind of irregular migration, um, it's difficult to incorporate in our labor markets, and that's the point of it, that that's the difficulty of how to manage this process, and uh, regarding this element, how to manage migration, irregular migration, who has already, or which has already arrived to an European country, simply there is no debate about how to share this uh, responsibility, if there is a common responsibility, or no, we don't even have uh, uh, common norms about what a state can or cannot do with irregular migrants staging in uh, their uh, soils. So everything is uh, open here. I mean, the debate has not even begun. Uh, um, if you don't mind, uh, I would like to take some questions from the audience and then I'll come back to you, is, uh, if you don't mind bearing with us. Why don't we just open the floor for, for questions so we can involve our, uh, our audience. Questions? Yeah, um, let me collect a, a couple of questions and come back to the, the other. Jose? Yes, good morning to all. I'm Jose Veriz, the ambassador of Guatemala to Belgium and, and uh, head of the mission to the EU. And uh, more than a question, I just wanted to make a comment. Sure. And it's, uh, uh, of course, uh, regarding the, uh, the comprehensive development plan that uh, Mexico has taken an initiative with the new administration. From our perspective, from Guatemala perspective, uh, for that plan to be successful, we think that there have to be, has to be two main important things. The first one, it has to keep the origins of being a cooperative framework where all the countries work together around one vision and decide upon 
and agree upon the different projects or actions that have to be taken. Uh, and the second thing for it to be successful is that it really has to be true to its name. It has to be a comprehensive uh, plan. It can not only be, and, and Mauricio referred to the other things that addresses, it can not only be addressing economic issues uh, with the vision of making people stay in their country of origin. Migration is, is, is a challenge, we, we've discussed it, and people will continue to migrate no matter the level of development of a country. Uh, they will find opportunities in other countries that they might not find in their own country despite the development stages of that country. So that's why we think that aside of economic, there has to be also political and also security purposes. We had the experience already, especially the countries in the northern part of Central America. We've had already the experience with the Alliance for Prosperity with the United States. That was a plan that was decided by the United States for us that was focused on an issue that was of interest to the United States. And years later, we have seen that the, uh, uh, all the purposes, the objectives that were uh, uh, told at that time or, or made at that time, the purposes of it, might have accomplished some successes in very specific areas, but they haven't stopped migration. It's in the last years that we've seen uh, the search of, of migrants to the United States. And I think that's, uh, that's why, I, in our case, it is important that it doesn't become a one project or a one issue plan. In this case, uh, there are some concerns that it is already becoming a one investment portfolio plan. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's probably the third. I said two, but it's, it's the third. It has to have the full commitment of the countries. They are the first ones that have to invest in the plan. It's not for the goodwill of the international community or for third parties to invest in one plan. It has to be us ourselves putting the money where we're saying that we want to develop. If we are uh, counting on its success by the investors from, from abroad, it will, again, probably be a good initiative, a good plan, but we will not see uh, the years to come. And we just wanted to make uh, those comments now. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, I actually have also a question, but can we ask, uh, yeah, please, the gentleman over there, if you can have the microphone, please. It's a bit dark there. I can't see. Is anybody? Yes. Right it's a bit dark. <laughs> and there's a question there, yes. So let's take these two questions. Please. It's on, actually. If... Is this working? Miguel Diaz with the U.S. Embassy. Uh, my question applies mostly to the Venezuelan, uh, but I, I guess it could apply to Central American uh, migrants as well. In, in the case of Venezuela, we're all hoping for a day after where we'll have a, a return to democratic order in Venezuela. I wonder to what extent uh, the Europeans are looking at the exile Venezuelan community as part of a long-term plan to reconstruct Venezuela. A lot, of the, uh, a lot of the Venezuelans who have left in recent years uh, have been, in, in, to a large degree, middle-class Venezuelans who or, or were part middle-class Venezuelans a while ago. And these are folks who have a lot to contribute to the building of the country. I'm wondering to what extent there's any thinking going on in Europe on how to take advantage of, the, uh, of this community to rebuild the country. Thank you very much. Let's take another question from here. 
Does it work? Well, it's not a question, it's just a comment. Uh, my name is Hernán Sainz. I work at Oxfam, a senior researcher and also a ULAC representative. And at Oxfam, we're developing a, a study on the perception of people from Colombia, Ecuador, and Peru on Venezuelan migration, which I think is something very interesting. And I just want to just mention three conclusions. It's an ongoing project. The first one is that there's a lot of um, machismo in the society and these three societies even though they they feel like kind of like comfortable with Venezuelan migration because they feel some kind of brotherhood there's a feeling of machismo towards Venezuelan women the second one is there's a huge worry within this the population in Colombia Ecuador and Peru about racism and xenophobia even though they also there's also the feeling that there's some kind of there's going to be at some point in the future some kind of competition economic competition for jobs etc and the third one which I think is the most striking one is that there's a sense that even though this this feeling of brotherhood and this idea that they don't want racism, racism and xenophobia to expand all over their society, there's this feeling that public services are going to collapse because of migration. And I think that's very interesting. I think that's a point where the European Union can really make an improvement in the relation between the EU and lack countries related with migration. Because we're talking about many issues related with Latin American countries, and there's the, what Mr. Collazzoli was mentioning this morning about the graduation of this country. Latin American region is basically a middle-income country region, which is not allowed anymore to receive that grant, and this is creating a problem of finance in the region. And one of the main, another characteristic of the region is the vulnerability of societies and the vulnerability of public services. Services. So yeah. I think this sense of migration creating um, beyond the security and economic impacts, this increase in the vulnerability of public services is something which is very worrying within their societies, but at the same time, how the European Union could improve the public service provision in these countries, especially taking into account that they become middle-income countries, they don't have the, the same access that they had to finance, mm -hmm. certainly. Thank you. Okay. Thank you very much. Why don't we come back to the panel? Diego, would you like to go first now? I don't know if you managed to hear all the questions that have been on the floor. Yeah, Any yeah, comments? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Can you hear me again? Yes, yes, very good. Go ahead. Can you hear me again? Can you hear me again? Yes, we can. Okay, okay, sorry. Uh, yeah, I just like to, to make... Okay, thank you. Okay, thank you. I just like to make three three points and, uh, related to, to, to what the colleagues have been saying. The first one is, let's not lose focus on that there are many internationally legally binding instruments out there, which many countries around the world have ratified. Uh, let's talk about the um, International Convention of Civil and Political Rights, the Children Convention, the Convention Against Torture, and all these conventions have elements which are central in the regulation of migration law. Moreover, if we look at the UN Convention on the Rights of Migrant Workers, I agree with Carmen, it hasn't been ratified by that many countries, but if you combine that with the two ILO conventions, the picture becomes a little bit more optimistic because you have more than 90 countries that have at least ratified one of these three key instruments of migrant workers. So I think the fact that obviously we repeat that the global compact is non-binding doesn't mean that we have to ignore the fact that many of the principles in the global compact are coming from well-established international binding instruments that most countries around the world have ratified. 
regional level again, right? The second thing that I would like to say very quickly is that it is very important to understand how flows happen. Most flows in the case of the European Union happen absolutely normally. If you look at the data from 2017, 3.1 million first permits were granted in the European Union in the 28 member states of the European Union in 2017. 3.1 million residence permits first granted. Who got those first granted residence permits? First, workers, more than a million. Second, family members. Third, other categories, including refugees. Fourth, students. Who are the countries benefiting from these residence permits? Who would you say is the first country who has more residence permits, more first residence permits granted in the European Union? It's not Syria, it's not any country in Africa, it's Ukraine more than a half a million first residence permits granted, most of them in Poland. And that goes to my third point. By the way, the other uh, top five countries are India and then yes, Syria, in this very peculiar, specific historical context, right? And that goes to my third point, which is about the role of narratives, which is very important. And this goes to discussions that I have mentioned earlier about how presidents in South America present issues. For example, the colleague from Colombia was talking about how xenophobia is enhanced, how people have concerns about uh, competition, the labor market in the welfare state. That has to do also with the way in which presidents present issues, for example, Lenny Moreno in January. But it also has to do with the way in which the European Union presents issues. If you look at the um, uh, Commission approach for migration from 2000, 2015, the document, and the follow-up from 2017, the European Commission simply ignores that most movements in Europe happen normally, happen within established legal frameworks, and simply tries to concentrate on the anecdote, statistically speaking, which is undocumented migration, trafficking, and smuggling. If uh, those documents, for example, have a total obsession with return. You go, you read the documents, you count the times, the word return appears on those documents is more than 60 times. So it is very important to construct the narratives about what is really happening on the ground. If most migration takes place normally, if no one is talking, for example, about a Ukrainian migration crisis, why is that the case? No one is talking about that because Ukrainians have visa-free access to the European Union. Most go to Poland, most obtain a, a, a residence permit in Poland. So I think law and the way we present things is extremely important in how uh, public opinion reacts. Uh, and I think the European Commission has not led in the last five years, and many presidents in South America have not led in the last couple of years. Thank you very much, Diego. You make a very good point, the question of the narrative. That is, of course, crucial for managing public opinion and also for the facts, revealing what the facts are. Um, Carmen, do you have a, a view on, on the issue of how Europe uh, thinks about Venezuelans? Um, uh, not really. Maybe there are some other persons uh, in the room who are much more expert than me on this point. Uh, from a purely Spanish point of view, uh, only I can say that uh, Spain is doing uh, big efforts to guarantee legal stay of uh, people coming from Venezuela in Spain, uh, opening a special channel for them. So that's what they have done. Uh, they are granting uh, legal permits for staying based on humanitarian special basis uh, because they do not qualify as refugee. They are not uh, fleeing uh, 
country in war or they are not uh, specifically personally uh, being um, subject to any kind of persecution. So uh, that's uh, all I can say. Sorry. Um, very quickly, just uh, on what Diego mentioned, in this, that was one of the things that the Global Compact tried, is to encourage the exchange of information, to see the facts, to be objective. So that, that is a, a good point. And of course, just to uh, thank my colleague, the Ambassador of Guatemala, for his uh, short, accurate, and powerful uh, <laughs> points uh, that I fully share. And I, I do hope that uh, um, together, Guatemala, Honduras, and Mexico, we can use this platform not only to address a common concern, but also to put our relationships even in a higher level, if possible. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yes, yes. Carlos, you have one last No, only comment about the Venezuelan migrants in Europe. Many of them arrive to Europe with European passports, mainly Spanish, Portuguese or Italian, so they facilitate the insertion in, in our countries. So that is not an issue of integration then, I mean, if, if you come in as a national, there isn't a... Uh, yes, Diego, you have also a, a comment? Diego. <laughs> yeah? Which is absolutely spot on. An anecdote, if you like, but which is important. The largest number of non nationals obtaining Spanish nationality through the route of Sephardic Jews who were expelled from Spain in 1492, the largest number are from Turkey. The second largest number are from Venezuela. 1,500 Venezuelans have obtained Spanish nationality through that route, which is extremely important. Another very interesting point about Venezuelans in Spain is there are 30, 37,000 Venezuelans who have a, a residence status as family members of EU nationals, possibly precisely what Carlos was saying. Dual nationals who have Portuguese, Italian, or Spanish nationality bring their family members, and most importantly, these family members, of course, are treated the same as EU citizens because they are family members of EU citizens in a member state. So uh, this is um, uh, very, very important. I think, I think that the case of Venezuelans in Spain, and this is for El Cano, maybe for Carmen, I, I think we need to explore it uh, even even more because certainly, I mean, there are not that many Venezuelans coming, coming to Spain, but if you look globally, Spain is the sixth largest uh, recipient of Venezuelans in the world. Colombia, Peru, Ecuador, Chile, Argentina, and then Spain, right? So I think, I think we, we have to, to look at these issues. Also, Venezuelans are obtaining um, the so-called golden visas as investors, as highly skilled workers. So it's a, it's a very interesting how Venezuelans are um, navigating the legal system, also as refugees, right, to obtain residence permits in Spain. Mm, wow, that's... That's very interesting. Good idea, Diego. <laughs> Thank you very much, uh, Diego. I'm afraid that's all we have uh, time for right now. We have to finish. This is a topic that will, that will be with us for some time. We're hoping for good cooperative arrangements in an era where the, co the, you know, the will to cooperate isn't as high as it ought to be. Uh, but following your, your suggestions on sort of continuing on, that, on the humanitarian side, I think that is a very good message to take away. We're going to pause now for... Um, for, for lunch, but uh, not before I take the opportunity to thank uh, our, our panelists for, for joining us today. And Diego, thank you for staying up and uh, joining us from so far away and making all the effort. Um, uh, we'll pause now. We'll see you back at uh, one o'clock. Uh, please join me in thanking the panelists. Thank you. <laughs>